Hello and welcome to another episode of Beyond Busy, the show where we talk productivity, work-life balance and defining happiness and success. My name's Graham Olcott, I'm your host for the show and on this episode I'm talking to Eugenie Teasley, Chief Executive of the Goodall Foundation. So I think you're going to really enjoy this one. Eugenie is Chief Executive of the Goodall Foundation based here in Brighton. She's also the founder of a charity called Spark and Metal, which uh, did a lot of work and still does a lot of work around uh, helping young people to flourish and helping young people to achieve their potential from all different backgrounds. And she's just got some really interesting perspectives. I've wanted to get her on the podcast for a while and um, now just seemed like a good time. So she is someone who has a lot to say about... Uh, successes and failures and some of the kind of getting under the bonnet, uh, getting underneath the hood, as the Americans say, uh, of what it's like to be a chief executive, what it's like to be an entrepreneur when it's less rosy and things aren't going so well. Uh, she's also, and we didn't talk about this in the conversation that we had, but she's also someone who I think is really good in a blog format. And whenever you email her, she tends to have her latest blog post kind of linked uh, below her email signature. And they're always really good. So um, go and check out Eugenie's blog as well. Um, so let's get right into this. This was uh, only recorded uh, about a week or so ago. And we're on the Goodall Foundation's barge, which is literally a barge in Brighton Marina. So we're kind of looking out at boats and, and the sea. And uh, it's, a, it's a space that I've been to a couple of times before. I actually did a, a Think Productive Away Day on the barge uh, last September, which was great fun. Although... A little bit kind of, there was, there was some seasick moments, which isn't necessarily what you want when you're doing strategy, I guess, but, uh, but all good. So let's get into it. Here's my conversation with Eugenie Teasley. So we're on a place called The Barge. So we're literally sat on a barge. Doesn't feel like it's moving. No, right it now, might, surely. It probably will do, surely. Mm -hmm. uh, looking out over Brighton Marina. Uh, why are we on a barge? Should we start there? <laughs> uh, it's a very good question. Um, the barge was, um, so a little bit of history, the barge was originally built in 1921 and named the Selby Virgo and it was built in order to uh, haul tons and tons of grain up and down the Humber uh, and the waterways of the north. Um, and then I think it was bought maybe in the late 70s or early 80s um, by a guy who wanted to set up his own Chinese restaurant and he wanted to turn it into a floating pagoda. So he put on a top deck, an upper deck, and um, a very fancy, very heavy roof um, of Chinese tiles and turned it into a Chinese restaurant that operated the marina for, I think, about 20 years, if not more. Um, that was sold and he finished that uh, beginning of um, the year before last, so 2016. And it was going to be scrapped. It was going to be cut into pieces and, and um, taken away, uh, which would have been a huge shame. Um, and my boss, who uh, is the owner of the marina, just said, let's not waste it. Let's, yeah. not, let's not be yeah. wasteful. What else could it be? Um, and the marina in Brighton has all sorts of things going for it. It's location. Um, it's got huge commercial stuff, loads of restaurants, free parking, which is a big plus in Brighton. Especially in Brighton, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, lots of um, residents and everything as well, loads of visitors. Uh, but it didn't really have a community space. Um, and so we were really excited about maybe turning in this into a very unusual community and space. So that's what we've done. 
Um, so we just basically took out all the stuff that was in it, did a very gentle um, update job, kept some of the great 80s Chinese restaurant features, yeah. uh, including this kind of copper um, ceiling, um, which is actually sort of um, bubbled wallpaper covered with copper paint. <laughs> um, and it's now available for community and youth groups, mostly to hire out at very kind of affordable rates. So it is at times on days like today, um, uh, without any groups in, it's a kind of quiet and peaceful place. And during the school holidays and other times, it's just alive with the sound of kids or sort of others doing workshops and events, kind of as a creative, mad yeah. space. And what, so I've known you for a few years and what I've enjoyed about you doing this job is the stories that you tell me about the kind of stuff that goes on here and the kind of people, like, I think you're a very good networker in Brighton. Like mm. you kind of often introduce me to different people in Brighton. Um, and um, there's been some pretty crazy things that have been happening on this part. So yeah. maybe just give us a flavour of a couple of those sure. uh, events that have been going on here. Yeah, over the summer, um, we had Onka, which is a local gallery, uh, run a series of events here, culminating in a 4D reenactment of the movie Jaws. <laughs> um, so uh, they got kind of um, Jaws-like sort of masks and headpieces and did a live sort of reenactment of the story nice. uh, downstairs in the in the lower deck of the barge in sort of the dark of an evening uh, which was really fun um, and for regular beyond busy listeners, listeners so i actually got to know onka and the memorial day for, for lost species through you that was how oh. i was put in touch and so we had persephone on the podcast as well so oh, cool. uh, joining the dots yay that's wonderful so yeah, we work with them and they're, they're great. Um, we worked with um, the Tana Community uh, Youth Centre Community Group and they got lots of different organisations in, including Exploring Senses, who got glue guns onto the barge and a bunch of kids and they did toy hacking. So you where you get old toys that are kind of broken and sort of fall into disrepair and then you just kind of mash them together into kind of new, <laughs> creepy creations. <laughs> So you get My Little Ponies who've got like an extra alien head like attached to them in one place and various other things. Um, so we do things like that. And then we've done workshops with adults, everything around kind of sustainability and what it is to sort of uh, work collaboratively, thinking about a greener, brighter vision. Um, so we did one that one of those for the marina through to um, we did a workshop with a range of people who were able to fund and support charitable projects. So that might be trust and foundations, a bit like the Goodall Foundation. It might be local councils. Um, it might be businesses who are interested in being able to kind of chip in where they can and really getting them to think how they can collectively shape what's going on on the ground and um, where are the opportunities to work together when quite often people in this world want to have their own slice of the impact pie. They want to know that for the £10 or £10,000 or £10 million they donate, whatever it is, that they can see the results as a direct consequence of, of that generosity. And sometimes that's really great. And also sometimes that means it can be quite a fractured experience for those who are either delivering services or the beneficiaries of services on the ground. So we do things like that. Um, and uh, all manner of various bits and pieces in between. So we've got... Um, uh, things coming up over Easter and a big plan for the summer um, to have a range of activities for young people too. Cool. So if you're in and around Brighton, come and check out the barge. Yes. Um, how you find it is you basically head to like where the Weatherspoons pub is and yeah. then look down. look down from there and you'll find it. And you'll see the long thing with a, uh, it's basically like a shed roof uh, and red sides 
Um, and myself and my colleague Sonetta are normally sitting in the office bit, which is um, uh, uh, just down one the end. The driver's seat. Basically. The driver's seat, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and should we talk about the 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 tide rising and falling what was the what was the word you used before what are the what do you call these platforms what are they called pontoons pontoons right so the pontoons i was just coming down i was like this feels like a, a longer steeper walk than is usual yeah. so we're nearly at low tide yes although the barge is accessible um i think that the the uh, angle of the ramp at low tide yeah. is such that you wouldn't want to put a wheelchair down that. You'd have to go the long way around. Unless you had good brakes. And Unless good, you had um, very good yeah. brakes. Um, so, yeah, so it, it, the tide here goes up by up and down by seven metres um, between high and low tide. So in the marina, everything that isn't built on or jutting out of the water, so all the pontoons for the boats um for the little cabins, which are the yellow and white, uh, they almost look like corrugated iron, um, which are, there are two sort of arms of them that, that lean out. All of those rise and fall by seven metres two times a day. Yeah. Uh, and it's really amazing. So at low tide, you can sort of look out from the walkway and you have to look really far down. And at high tide, you look out and they're almost at eye level um, in front of you. So it's a really amazing experience. And at low tide, when it's really, really low, which is sometimes when the moon is full, um, the barge then goes sits on the kind of silty floor and tips to oh, one wow. side. Okay. And on windy days, it properly rocks, uh, <laughs> whether the high, tide is high or low, and it kind of bangs around. And I am not um, massively good at sitting and working like on my laptop, reading or writing. Uh, when it's really rocking around, luckily my colleague Sonetta yeah. is super hardcore, um, but me less so. So you really feel like you're in the elements, um, and it's a yeah, it's a really inspiring, beautiful, light, bright place. Um, and do you measure your? So obviously there's lovely view out over the boats and, and the sea beyond and everything. Do you sort of measure your productivity by? I need to get this done by the time the tide reaches a certain level and stuff like that. Like, can you start to, the answer is start no, to become your like tide Pomodoro kind of thing? I love that as an idea. I would absolutely love to be able to um, do that. And I haven't done it yet. So you've just inspired me. There you go. So, There's a new piece great. of productivity. <laughs> stuff um, so you are, so part of this whole mission with the, the barge and setting this up as a community space is because you're running the Goodall Foundation. Mm-hmm. Do you want to just talk about what that is and also how you came to be part of that? Sure. Um, so the Goodall Foundation is a philanthropic foundation set up by the um, owner of the marina, um, a man called Andrew Goodall. And it's set up in honour of his parents, Robin and Sylvia Goodall. Um, he and his family have been really um, focused on doing a lot of charitable work for many years um, and through various different organisations. So he was chair of a different educational trust um, charity for a long time. Um, and his mum has done a lot of work out in Tanzania, which he subsequently got involved in. So there's been a lot of stuff going on sort of with the family for a long time. And about three years ago, two years, three years ago, he started having the idea of wanting to set up a foundation of his own that he could then, um, you know, be able to shape the direction um, of where he wanted his philanthropic um, funding to go. And I um, got involved about two years ago so um, when he was beginning to set it up in 2016, um, he wanted to find somebody who knew how to set up a charity. And I had done that once before in a very small and meager way. It was a charity that was needing to request funding rather than a charity that would be able to give funding. 
Um, but I had that experience um, behind me and I was looking for, for another opportunity. Um, so that's why I got involved at that particular moment. And it was a really, really exciting time because it was about taking one person's ideas of how they would like to have a positive impact in the world and really trying to turn that into an organization and what that might feel like. What does that what does the business plan look like when your vision is to empower people to change their lives for the better? Like, what is your theory of change? How are you going to make that happen in small incremental ways? Where are you going to operate? All those kind of big, exciting kind of philosophizing questions um, that was just super energizing. Um, and uh, so we worked really hard on that for the first nine months before we got live and was granted uh, charitable status by the Charities Commission. Um, and since then, we've been running um, a range of funding and other um, programs and projects. So we give out grants to organisations, many of them in Brighton and on the south coast in the UK. A lot of them also in Tanzania, which is where historically his family have um, invested a lot um, philanthropically and in terms of time and, and, and other ways of being generous. Um, and then also uh, we've continued and sort of taken on a project um, that I supported and, and got rolling over in the Middle East and North Africa, which is a pro- project in partnership with the British Council and HSBC. And we've sort of taken that in-house um, when I closed down my former charity uh, called Spark and Metal. Um, so we've been running that as well. So those are our kind of three main regions. But we've been really curious about sort of other places too. So we funded projects as far-flung as India and Colombia, Um, We've done projects where we give out £400 and we've done projects where we give out £50,000. So the range is kind of fairly big. Um, And it has been just the most astonishing uh, couple of years of just really um, uh, being allowed to be experimental and exploratory in terms of what is the best way of being able to give and support really exceptional organisations doing vital deep um and change making work on the ground and i remember when you first got this job and obviously we'd known each other for a long time before that and i i said to you i think this is just like the perfect thing for you at that time because one it was something that was based in brighton and you spent a lot of time with spark and metal on the train up to london and doing that commute thing which is just tiring yeah um two and we'll maybe come on and talk about spark and metal in a minute but you had a, a sort of experience with that where you were closing that down and then it was like okay do I want that pressure of being the person who's got an organization on my shoulders um and then it also gives you this kind of sense of being able to start something and build something and be entrepreneurial but with a regular paycheck that you don't have to worry about the life and soul and existence of it happening stuff so it, it was like a it really was an amazing opportunity and I think you've articulated that exactly right it was a huge amount of um trust that was kind of um, given to me to be able to um, to be able to do this and in, and in the way that you've just described and it was so that was that was massive I agree actually being in Brighton having had a lot of my energy and focus directed in everything that was not Brighton that was a, a massive um, boost to be able to work alongside other people and I think there's something around accountability um, so when I set up Spark and Metal my previous charity I set up with friends who were the kind of startup trustees. Mm. And that was great because there was kind of energy and initiative and big ideas and and a lot of kind of um, helpful criticism and guidance and everything as well. But I think also being surrounded by a more um, established and experienced group, not just of trustees um, uh, for the Goodall Foundation, but also other people who work in the marina and for Andrew, my boss, um, 
I think that that then gives a kind of a greater sense of being part of something where I can go to others for expertise and guidance. And I really wanted that. And I wanted somebody to kind of call me up um, short when I had when I hadn't like totally performed or done something kind of completely right or made a decision that needed to have a bit of work done on. In Spark Metal, there was so much autonomy um, mm. uh, that I wanted. I was I was I was craving a bit of direction and having the kind of parameters and the and the borders set for me. So that was really cool. But as you said, within that, like once those were set, there's been real freedom within that to then allow it to go in a way that feels right. And that sounds quite kind of fluid and almost nebulous. But there's a lot of thinking and theory behind that that allows for that flexibility and entrepreneurial spirit. Um, so we're not kind of naive and reckless with the projects that we pick. Um, we're incredibly thoughtful, but we want to be flexible and sort of open to what what comes before us rather than too prescriptive in advance. Yeah, and I think you're someone who you do think about things quite deeply and you like frameworks and I think you have a real skill of sort of putting putting frameworks and theory around stuff to really aid decision-making. Um, and you're also someone that can uh, think quite in quite a contrarian fashion or you're not afraid to challenge convention and stuff like that. And one of the ways that illustrates that, and we'll link to this in the show notes, is when you went to the uh, Happy Startup School summer camp. And this is a whole bunch yeah. of people. We've had Lawrence and Carlos on the podcast as yeah. well. Um, you know, I, I really like, They're and I'm great. looking forward to going to the Alps with them in June as well. I bet you are. Um, it's going to be great. Uh, but this is a camp of people who are all... Uh, either in the midst of startups or they're about to take that leap into startups and it's that kind of startup culture of entrepreneurial stuff. And you basically went there and said, here are a bunch of reasons why running your own business isn't necessarily always the best yeah. thing. And like, it's much better having a boss and spending yeah. someone else's money and all the yeah. rest of it. So, so I, tell me about that. And also yeah. specifically around that, what's, how would you define your relationship with the word entrepreneurial or entrepreneur? I think that's yes. an interesting thing. Yeah, really interesting. I think that you don't have to be your own boss in order to be an entrepreneur or entrepreneurial. There's the the kind of phrase in corporate life now of intrapreneurship, right? Which I don't really like. It's kind of annoying. Um, but <laughs> I think that there's, but I think that there's a, there's the the essence of it is something that I totally buy into, mm. if not for like the jargon. Let's come up with a word of our own. Um, and I think that that's really important. And if, if entrepreneurs are only forced off into doing something of their own, um, then we have this kind of very fractured series of micro businesses or opportunities or whatever. And actually, I think that often the best form of, um, of growth and the most progressive form of growth is those that allow um, innovation and divergent thinking to exist within a current organization. So that for me is where entrepreneurial spirit is as important, if not more important, to big established organisations as it is to people who just have it in them that they want to strike out and do their own thing. Um, so, yes, it was really funny. Lawrence actually came to the bar just a few months ago um, on the beginning of the summer of, of 2017. And he was like, Jane, you know, I mean... <sighs> is it I don't know how I mean okay I'm slightly over characterizing how he approached this <laughs> because it's like you know can you sort of make some people feel that it's okay to not set up their own thing yeah and I was like absolutely <laughs> this is working out really well for me right now because where I am in life there's I took all the responsibility and I held it for six years and it was 
it was really fucking exhausting like being wholly responsible not just for the potential change in outcomes for young people who we were trying to support which was the kind of the aim of the organization but also for the livelihoods of people who were then being employed by us and um I found that responsibility really tough, particularly in the world of charity, where it is all about like waiting for next grant to come in and you write seven applications and maybe one might come back for like a third of what you've asked for. Uh, and you can't really predict, you can't do the kind of business plan, spreadsheet, budget projections for what you think you might come in because it's, it's all just a kind of, it's a guessing game. Um, and you also have, I think, particularly in small charities, feasts and famines, right? So you have times yeah. where three of the five come in yeah. and you're in a really good position and then yeah. times when none of the five come in yeah. and you're really exactly. screwed. Exactly. And I'm really good at preparing budgets and I'm terrible about then, like, like bookkeeping, like putting in the entries of what has been spent where. I just, mm. like, I'm, like, running on to the next thing. So I'm very aware of what I'm rubbish at and that's one of them. Although that did not help me with Inspiring Metal because it just kind of fed my fear and anxiety. So going to work for something else where you actually take the check every month, there's responsibility, there's opportunity, you can be entrepreneurial and have differences of, of opinions and um, try and kind of go in new directions, um, but still have the security of somebody else putting the money into the bank each month. That was a massive, massive thing. And I think I was also going on, it was at the time where I was just coming out of maternity leave number two. So that's quite a lot of... Yeah, we should say with a role yeah, that you have two kids. <laughs> two kids in there. So kid number one came just before the idea of setting up Spark of Metal. So I did that with kind of him bouncing on my knee. Um, and kid number two came just as I was thinking, this is really exhausting. I've got to find... I was going to step out and be the chair of Spark of Metal rather than being the CEO. Because I'm also very aware of founder syndrome and that actually for an organisation to grow quite often, it is the case that if a founder steps away, it can kind of go in new directions. So happened in this time that it sort of, the, the bulk of the kind of core mechanism of Spark and Metal shut down. But some of the projects and lived on through the different individuals who went on, on and did different things. Um, so yeah, so, <laughs> and it was really funny. So going to the thing, I was like the, it's all right, guys, even if this doesn't work out for you, you're going to be fine. So that was mm-hmm. my pitch at the, at the Happy Startup Summer Camp. Uh, and I stood up there and I think I likened myself to Tyrion in Game of Thrones, who, um, if anybody doesn't watch it, has, he used to be this kind of um, princely figure um, who was then an outcast from his kingdom. And he ended up becoming the hand, so the kind of quiet advisor to the mother of dragons. Hmm. Uh, and I was explaining that my boss is a little bit less awesome than the mother of dragons. But actually, there's something really interesting in that kind of soft power dynamic of hmm. not necessarily being the one where it's the final say, but there's an opportunity for um, negotiation and conversation and discussion around things that can still shift and shape and inform um, the ultimate decisions that get made. That was really that was really appealing to me at the time and that I still really like. I definitely found that being chair of Reed International, which had a very formidable founder, chief exec, chief exec Rob Wilson, who's now running Toast yes. Toast Ale. So shout out to Toast Ale. We'll have to get Rob on the podcast. Yes. As well. Why haven't I done that yet? That's funny. Because you're a bad person, um, Graham. That's yeah, fine. I think so. Uh, and so I was the chair and we were such a good double act because I really had no desire to be the front person and to be 
because there is a little bit of a convention in the charity world that the chair is supposed to do more of the kind of mm-hmm. public facing public speaking stuff mm-hmm. which is weird because the chair is a volunteer and the yeah. chief exec gets paid and they're meant right? to be bringing in the, yeah, the, the and, uh, money a bit, a bit of that but I would do a lot of that sort of hanging around in the background going hang on have we thought about this or just or maybe we should just push that a little bit more and be slightly more ambitious mm-hmm. whatever. and just having some of those mm-hmm. behind the scenes conversations which I really felt I could influence yeah. a lot for actually not putting in that much time primarily because Rob was really good and just really yeah. really sort of focused on what we were doing but I think that there are opportunities aren't there to play that kind of soft power or sort of kind of softer power yeah. kind of role and I think for me there's something as well I really I really liked kind of there was there was the right time and place of kind of spearheading something for myself that I felt that was really important and I don't know if it's a sign of me just getting weaker or older or whatever it might be um, but there's for, for me actually doing doing things in collaboration with others so when you are part of a diverse team or series of people who come together and swarm for a particular project or purpose or whatever it might be that for me is when there's real like stickiness and kind of the the opportunity for something to really stay and grow and evolve um because i think entrepreneurs can often or those of entrepreneurial spirit can often be quite sort of flighty Hmm. They sort of land on something. Um, maybe I'm just characterising myself, and in order to make myself feel better, I'm just I'm just like spreading that out across the entire kind of entrepreneurial pool. Um, <laughs> so what are that they land? All, all they get excited. Like, yeah. Okay, what are you like? Exactly. <laughs> um, I was I was part of a program um, which took me over to the states for a while for a kind of social leaders program, and there I met a guy who ran a non-profit in New York. And he told me about something that he put on his wall, which was called the shiny squirrel board. And it was because, and it was like, it should have been a magpie or something. I don't know, but they just kind of turned it into shiny squirrel. But it was a board where all these brilliant ideas, because they were like doing their day job of like the nonprofit of what they're, what they're meant to be doing. So it's an education nonprofit. So doing that and they were doing that really well, but they would keep coming up with like amazing ideas of what else they could do. And they'd get really excited and they'd kind of go towards it. And so they referred to these ideas as like the shiny squirrels that they would just like want to latch onto and then make that stuff happen. But they realized quite quickly if they kept like following the shiny squirrels, then the core stuff that they were doing, there would be a lot of focus and energy and therefore kind of impact and everything else. So they created this board for the shiny squirrels where they would go and put all the ideas up on it. And I think you talk about it in your Good book, Ideas Park. The, oh, Good Ideas Park, yeah. exactly. So they just put, they just made it a shiny squirrel to be able to then go back and kind of check in. And it, that just like really stuck with me because I mm. think it's so easy to be distracted by the kind of great alternative things. Um, and um, so then when you've got other people around you who are the kind of start to finisher types um, and others then you're more liable to turn something that is not just an empty vessel of an idea into something that is a kind of solid and um, more permanent thing. And I think sometimes as well, just on the entrepreneurial thing. So for me, I think ideas, in some way, ideas are ten a penny, right? There's so many ideas that you can have and everyone has ideas. And often people say, well, it's not the ideas, but it's the execution. But I do think there's like a bit in the middle, isn't there, which is the the connecting an idea to the vision of how you execute. Like yes. the execution itself is often not the hardest bit, but yeah. coming up with the the bridge between idea and reality and yes. making the plan around that and, and starting that so that someone's so that a completed finisher person has something to grasp hold of yes. and 
and run with. Exactly. Like, it feels like that's the important bit. Yes, and I think there's also something about the sifting. So I totally agree about there being just like numerous ideas that you can kind of pluck and sort of do stuff with. But then also just being able to hold them in your hands for a bit, a bit like those like Chinese balls that you can like move around and make those noises. Mm. Do you know what I mean? And just kind of like feel them out for a little while and just say like, is there something there? Like where could this go and grow? Like how would this thing? And then knowing whether that's something that's worth and going into a little bit further. And I think that, you know, that can happen in different ways. So I agree that there is definitely a stage between having the ideas and executing them. And that's also about the kind of curation um, and selection process of the ones that you even might take forward. And then also figuring out who is needed and what is need- what are the resources needed in order for that to actually become something that's yeah, worth something. Absolutely. So we've talked a bit about Spark Metal already so far. Yeah. Let, let's really dive into that. And uh, so we're kind of doing your life story backwards. In reverse. Uh, so Spark Metal, just the... Uh, maybe just backtrack to the, the where that idea came from and and I particularly want to hear you talk about flourishing because I really yes. like hearing you talk about flourishing. Yeah, so um, the kind of the genesis of the idea, I, um, so my first job out of university was I was a teacher in South London um, for just over two years and there I was working with just like the coolest, greatest kids. I mean, often like super difficult and frustrating and dementing um, and naughty um uh, and that's like a euphemism um uh but it was like a really energizing and incredible thing and I came from like a a really different world I went to like posh private school um and it was um just an eye-opener and uh, I had a really really amazing time working with these young people and I also realized like particularly the first year when it got to um thinking about where they wanted to go to work experience when I wanted to do work experience I spoke to my mum and she got me like work experience at a newspaper because I wanted to go and do that and there were lots of my other friends sort of similarly right and this is a standard thing about you know those who've got access to networks and those who don't but it really struck home when all these kids who were probably more talented and capable than many of me and, and, and the peers I knew uh, were stuck with the options of going between um, stacking shelves and boots or working their uncle's kind of mechanic shop or whatever it might be. Not that either of those things are a bad option, but it's actually if what you want to do is going to be a journalist and be a writer. Not connected to what they actually wanted to do. Yeah, and so if it is connected, then that's perfect. But actually there are just few opportunities available. And I found that really frustrating. So pause that for a second and um, I'll fast track a couple of years. So I went and I did a master's in education um, over in the States at Berkeley and I worked for a non-profit over there. And when I moved back to the UK, um, I moved back and we were down in Brighton and I was just seeing like all these friends of mine who were like going off and doing these like super cool, interesting, non-traditional jobs, uh, creatives and like graphic designers and writers and all of these things. And they weren't, there weren't many of them being policemen or nurses, a couple of doctors or whatever. But they were doing all these things, like these jobs I didn't even know existed uh, and I was still in touch with a lot of the kids that I'd been teaching. Um, and they were, re- and a lot of them were curious about, they were quite creative, they wanted to go into different things. So I started to sort of make these connections. And um, and I realised that it's as, as beneficial for the young professionals to go and engage with young people who were trying to figure out what they want to do with their lives, as it was for the young people themselves. And it would create an opportunity to kind of share and exchange ideas and knowledge and information in a really informal but kind of fun way. And for me, the kind of essence of flourishing comes out of all of that is actually, as I've spoken about a little bit already, when you have divergent thinking, when you have diverse minds in a room together, for me, that's like the essence of like 
like for me that's like flourishing for myself um so it's really selfish actually (laughs) motivated this barker metal thing getting different people in a room together who were engaging on on topics and ideas that they had no idea that they were going to kind of find a point of mutual um agreement on or kind of ideas or enthusiasm for was something that i really enjoyed and so it was really about actually getting these young people to see that um for them it and for anybody actually if you can identify what your own character strengths are um, that can, and if you can find jobs and opportunities that play to those strengths, then um, you are more likely to flourish both in work and in life. Um, so we did a huge amount of work in theory around positive psychology and philosophy on this stuff. So everything from Aristotle back in the day uh, when he wrote something called um, the Nicomachean Ethics, and he came up with the concept of eudaimonia, which is really hard to translate in, in English. And it sounds unbelievably wanky and pretentious when you say it out loud. Um, <laughs> but it's this essence of kind of human flourishing or kind of finding what makes you feel good and purposeful. Um, and his notion was that it can't be an end in itself. So if you just want to be happy or if you just want to flourish and like that's your aim, um, you'll probably never get there because it's a bit like the pot at the end of the rainbow that is constantly moving. Um, and doesn't really exist. It's this kind of um, um, amorphous thing, um, a mirage. Um, but if you can figure out what activities or actions you can take, what is the good that you can do, then that's more likely that you ultimately kind of feel the sense of flourishing or happiness or completeness or whatever it might be. Uh, and to do that, modern theory has said that actually understanding what your strengths are and playing to those um, it, that's where you're more likely to be able to achieve those things. Um, and I think that for quite a lot of young people, you don't have that opportunity in school to really identify what your strengths are. So you might know what subjects you're good at, and you might know if you're good at algebra, or you may well know if you're bad at algebra. You might know if you're good at creative writing or analytical essays. But really understanding like how resilient you are or how um, much zest um, or energy that you have or how you can work in relation to other people, like your positive emotions or your kind of interpersonal stuff. Um, that isn't really like taught explicitly at school, often because teachers go into teach particularly secondary schools because there's a subject that they love and mm. the pastoral stuff yeah. comes behind. And also just because it's quite a, a new thing that, people kind of get it but they haven't found a way of being able to teach it in and of itself um and did you find so you're doing courses with uh well programs with young people mm-hmm. and exposing them to these ideas yeah resilience and zesty and all these yeah. you know, all these kind of interesting things did you find them more or less receptive than, say, like an adult audience would be to those things? Is there a difference or not? They were so up for it. So um, when we were starting out Spark and Metal, we ran a six-month program. So there, um, now I'm going to forget who it was, um, an American guy who um, wanted to set up his own like self-improvement program. And it's really annoying me, but I can't remember who it is, but I will tell you afterwards and you can put it in the notes. Um, <laughs> and uh, so he wanted to kind of make sure, but it was all about morality and virtue. Um, so he would assign it. So he wanted to demonstrate something like 13 virtues um, every day of every week. And if he had not demonstrated one, and they were things like um, chastity and... <laughs> 
Uh, I can't remember, I always remember that one. And like cleanliness. Um, and so sort of these various other things. And if he was ever like, I guess if he didn't take a bath one week or something, then he would put a mark against himself. And he wanted to have like a tabula rasa, like a clean slate that at the end of every six weeks or month, whatever it was, that he demonstrated all of these virtues. So we kind of took that as a principle. And we were like, well, why don't we like proactively try and build habits around d- demonstrating, improving some of these strengths, like working the muscles around them. So we set up like random projects, like for um, being able to develop confidence, actually giving somebody an activity to go up and talk to a stranger on a tube or a bus. I should add that all the young people work with 18 plus. So (laughs) um, we weren't being totally vagabond with our ideas. Um, And we'd ask the the adults who were their agents. So basically their kind of coaches and support, volunteer support people uh, for them to do the same thing too. And they were terrified about that. Like they were really nervous about going up and talking to strangers on a bus or a tube or whatever it Mm. might be. Um, but the young people, I mean, they like bowled up. They were like doing selfies and video stuff, like uploading all of this stuff and then talking through. So it was about taking action and then reflecting on how that action felt and just doing that regularly over a period of time to build up a habit. So there's this whole idea, you know, from Charles Duhigg and others that it takes about six weeks to build a habit and kind of embed it in any way. So we tried to do that on a six week cycle of going around on these particular strengths. No, so you've, you're basically on a Google Hangout and you've got the young person and then you've got their kind of mentor and they're both yes. doing the same yeah and it's not just one young week. person so we yeah. were doing it with one young uh, with one adult and then two three or sometimes four young people so there was also peer-to-peer learning in exchange yeah. as well and that was kind of that was super important it was we did that just because it was a, a more efficient to do it that way but it ended up being a kind of really key feature in how it was operating working because they were learning mm. from each other and getting feedback from each other so it was the idea of it's a bit like sort of plan do reflect which i think is what lots of people do when they're doing like project management stuff or in school when they're planning or whatever um and it was so it was really simple in that way but that process of constantly reflecting on actions that they had taken that they wouldn't otherwise have done um was a really nice way of getting people just to think about well actually out of all of these strengths vitality was another one and they're just like actually do i really want to concentrate on that not necessarily i really want to concentrate on building my spark and like my energy in the room like that's where my strength lies and i just want to turn that up to the max um and so that worked really well in those conversations which were semi-structured but then the further that we went through the program the more free the volunteer mentors and coaches were to sort of ad lib really because they'd got to know their young people so they knew what how to sort of take the conversation forward um, in helpful ways. So yeah, so that was the kind of the, the essence of it. And a lot of that has now, even though that program has closed, a lot of the essence of that has now evolved into this big project that we're doing with now six countries across the Middle East and North Africa. In uh, and it's going to be working with over five thousand young people, I think, by wow. the end of this year, um, and delivering that both within schools and training teachers to do this stuff as well over there because teachers haven't developed this like facilitatory uh, strengths-based approach to teaching Mm. Um, and doing some sessions outside of school time too so the young people get to exchange and engage with people who they don't normally including in some countries where they only have same-sex schools um, and then they're able to actually meet other people when they come to some of our sessions so that is a that that's a sensitive thing right you're walking into very deeply held cultural beliefs mm-hmm. and all of that how how just trying to work out my head how do you so how do you approach that and how do you try to push the envelope a little bit but also 
be sensitive to mm. some of those cultural dynamics? It's such a good question. So we've done it in two places. We've done it in the Middle East and North Africa. And we've also um, supported a project doing similar things in Tanzania. And again, you're so right to be culturally sensitive to this because where we see kind of confidence, other people might see a sign of disrespect. Mm. Uh, so how do you manage that and don't be the kind of, you know, the kind of all-seeing, all-knowing white guy coming in or woman coming in being like, this is what you need to do in order to be successful. Um, for the projects in the Middle East and North Africa, actually a lot of that cultural sensitivity and understanding comes from our British Council colleagues who are partners right. on the project, yeah. who've got a real sense of kind of what's needed. And also talking with the ministries of education with whom they have very good relationships out there and HSBC, who's the other partner, saying, this is what we need. These are these are the skills and strengths that we need as a business. The ministry is saying that these are the skills and strengths that we see that are going to be needed in the next 5, 10 to 15 years. And they're kind of attitudinal stuff around that. Uh, and then we can say, great. So we had nine strengths that we started with, but over there we just focus on five. So we focus on spark and metal. So kind of that zest stuff and the resilience piece. Um, and then three others. So we, we make sure that we adapt the stuff that we have and make that relevant there. So there's a lot of checking back and forth about, and also how to deliver that in ways that are um, respectful as well, while also giving a different viewpoint um, but one that is very much sensitive to what's going on. In Tanzania, we worked with a super cool organization called Ubongo Kids who create, ed- they're like an edutainment company. So they create animations um, which are teaching kids in Tanzania and across East Africa and actually further afield um, various skills that they may or not be may or may not be getting at school because of the schooling system out there being a little bit different to how it is here. Um, and so they really want to do stuff about strengths-based things because they saw that these the young people weren't getting any education around that at all. And they also wanted to push the envelope a little bit um, because their being respectful is hugely important. And that also means not asking questions and just doing what you're told. So it's kind of stymieing this notion of curiosity. Um, so they did what the British Council and HSBC had done over in Middle East and North Africa. So they went and talked to businesses and said, what are the sort of approaches and attitudes that you're looking for? And they went and talked to school teachers and leaders and said, what, do you, what are you seeing in your children and what would you like to see more of? Uh, and they talked to the children themselves. And out of that, they then focused on four of the nine character strengths that we had um, uh, sort of developed um, uh, materials around. Um, and then they created four animations, one on each of those four strengths. So can I remember from the top of my head what the four were? Curiosity was one. Yeah. Uh, resilience um, or grit was another. Um, <clears throat> and the other two, uh, oh, growth mindset was the third, like really key one. Mm. Um, because people feel like they just can't do stuff and that yeah. they're stuck. Um, and the fourth, I can't remember. Interesting. And so... In terms of the, the successes of, of Spark and Metal, so you set it up, it, it was an idea in your head, yeah. you engaged loads of people. I've known some people who've been agents, mm-hmm. so aka kind of mentors on the yeah. program and kind of seen the uh, like the benefit that it's uh, had for them as well as to the young people that they're mentoring and working mm-hmm. with and, and everything else. And so you had this kind of huge success with it and then you reached this point where, and I you might want to talk about the... Do you remember that blog post that you wrote about yeah. when, when you had when the financial thing? Up. Yeah. So when I fucked everything up. Yeah. So uh, what was really remarkable was that you there there was a whole bunch of stuff which you can talk about the fucking up of, but just you owned that fuck up. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I just found that 
actually really inspiring that you were able to to front up to that and, mm. and kind of learn from it and and see it as part of the journey as well but yeah, yeah. maybe talk about that sure. blog post and, yeah, so and that, the, that particular journey yeah absolutely so there was a lot you're right there's lots of things that are worth being proud of um building a team that at its peak i you know were employing and supporting 12 people was great having had zero um, working with 50 young people over the three three years primarily on that kind of core program that I've just been talking about, which is the Star Trek program with the volunteers, um, mentors and the groups of young people and several thousand more over the course of um, the other initiatives, both in the UK and overseas. So that was great. Bringing in over half a million in income was also amazing. So done pretty much single handedly over the course of that time and being able to deliver all that on a surprising low um, amount that's not five hundred thousand a year. That was, I mean, the first year I think I bought in less than ten thousand pounds, and we still ran it. Um, wow. So being able to do all of that was huge, and being able to build trusted partnerships with from kind of small organisations through to big national ones, such as the British Council, and sort of get their trust and buy into what we were doing. Um, so all of that was really, really exciting, and stuff that I will forever be really proud of and glad that I've done. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think that um, going back to that kind of shiny squirrel thing that we were talking about um, and also that thing of as in an organisation just like needing to get money from somewhere. So um, different funders have different agendas. And so you pitch according to the agenda that they set rather than the thing that you do. And it's kind of mission drift in yeah. charity speak. Yeah. Uh, and I really suffered from that because I was like desperate to bring in the money to be able to pay the people and sort of get things to run. And it meant that we ended up doing about three projects at once. So we were running the core Star Trek program, which was fully charitable. Uh, there was no way of being able to kind of generate any income from that. Um, and then we got some um, funding from the Design Council to develop a web platform, um, whatever that might be, to support young people get into employment. So we came up with an idea for that. That was great. And then that we went on to get more funding from that. And then we got some investment from um, uh, a couple of companies to be able to go and create an app. So suddenly we were doing like three major kind of things all at the same time, with the team still very small. And my focus being really on the charity side, not on the kind of business development side. And in the process of that, like the, the kind of my focus was just massively broken and kind of um, refracted in a way that just wasn't helpful or beneficial. Um, and I was just like blindly trying to keep going, trying to find more money. It's a bit like, you know, you create more and then you need more. And I didn't really know how to stop that. I didn't know at the time how to say, actually, let's just stay on that thing. And that's why I think I go back to that shiny squirrel thing a lot. The one thing I've learned is just where that keep the focus where the focus needs to be. Because um, I didn't do that. And that's when... As I'd also said earlier, um, setting budgets is fine. Managing the money and kind of checking where everything's going, less good. And I basically missed um, for one of our teams, which was a separate company kind of established. I had just totally missed the fact that we hadn't paid HMRC for any of the national insurance that was owed to them for all our employees on it. And that amounted to several thousand pounds. Um, and uh, I was just completely stuck. And it... it it undid that company and that project because um, all the funding that we'd had left, the investment we had left, had to go on then obviously paying that. So I had completely mismanaged the money. Um, it was an innocent mistake, but it was a devastating one. And the level of shame that I felt about it, I wrote the blog post almost as a way of sort of purging that and just because I just didn't know how else to handle it. 
Uh, and even after writing it, it still, it just sat with me for a really long time. Um, and I can talk candidly about it now and I kind of talk candidly about it then, but, um, but it was a really, it was a kind of a dark and difficult bit because it, I, not only did I feel like I failed and not on that like fun, let's te- let's fail like in tech stuff, <laughs> um, where everybody with like tight white shirts and smart chinos, like just talks about like fail club, um, <laughs> which I find a bit frustrating. But it was, but it was, it was failing because um, I had to let people go. Um, yeah, because it's like failure where an idea doesn't catch on, yeah. and not very much consequence yeah. happens as a result. But when you've got to look people in the eye and say, "I'm sorry, my fuck up means you're out of a job." Yeah, that's not great. And I don't, and like my whole, like one of my sources of pride was about cr- job creation. For aside from the mm. impact we were having on young people, I had created jobs and livelihoods for 12 people. That was huge to me. Those jobs hadn't existed and I had helped them come into existence. And then also my mismanagement and my fuck up meant that several of those jobs went, and in fact, it went down really small again in the end, not just because of that, but because of other things, um, kind of uh, the sort of skin shedding bit after that. It meant that we went back down to a core team of about three. Um, and that that was really, really hard to take because it's when the source of pride then also becomes a source of shame. Yeah. That was really hard. And I think that it was also what uh, incentivized me to want to go and find another role where um, there would be a group of people who where responsibility was meted out in a different way where I had been telling young people to play to their strengths all the time. And the one piece that I hadn't brought, brought into the team was, um, you know, my counterfoil of the kind of process, the ops person, the CFO, to be able to manage all of that stuff, which I should have done. And I was trying to play that role and I was just failing at it. Um, and now being having been in a team where those positions are filled, um, not directly within the foundation, but the those in the business who are kind of super ops folks and super financial heads and that there is a kind of group there um when you've got like people who've got the strength to do that that's when you that's when things go really well mm. um as i was told on a on a uh, course i went on a while ago if you try and play to if you try and improve your weaknesses you're only ever going to get mediocre uh because you're kind of starting out low right if you play to your strengths and you can like really excel and kind of grow and that's something that's really stuck with me ever since Absolutely. And so through that period then, so de- so dealing with the fallout of that financial issue and then making that transition, were you ever tempted to just say, look, I've done my bit, I'm just going to walk away and leave this? Or did you feel like you couldn't? Did you feel trapped by the fact that you had to kind of see see it through to a conclusion? I needed to make it good or at least as good as I could in the in the dire circumstances, which in the grand scheme of like fuck ups, maybe it's not that bad, but it felt really, really dark and bad to me. Um, so I wanted to make good and I wanted to make it, um, I wanted to make things right. I wasn't just going to kind of run away and hide. Um, but it also made me think about what I wanted to do next um, and realised that it was probably another, a, a good moment for me to, I mean, that plus then getting pregnant, there was like a, a natural <laughs> imperative for me to step aside but for somebody else to take it on who was able, I think you need different people at different stages of an organisation, right? So I'm really good about like setting things up or about kind of working with external stakeholders and kind of managing relationships on various projects, that kind of plate spinning bit. 
um, that steady, that steady kind of moving from infancy to teenager to kind of young adult bit. That's not where my 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 main game is. Yeah, uh, I wanted to find somebody who was able to do that and who could um, really make it slicker and better, both on the inside and on the outside. So yeah, a lot of tech companies they talk about the three CEOs, don't they? So you have like the the founder, you know, sort of startup CEO. Then you have the high growth CEO, and then you have the prepare for sale CEO. And you kind of yeah. need those three, you know, three different skill sets. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I definitely the prepare for sale stuff um, was uh, hasn't at least that hasn't been my forte or something that I've like naturally been kind of moved towards. Again, maybe it's a state like an age and stage thing. Maybe now that's something that I'd be really interested in going in and thinking about how can you finesse this um, and how can you make it. That's where the entrepreneurial spirit can still come in, like something that somebody else has set up. Mm. How can you then sort of finesse this and try and improve upon it? Um, and uh, so, so yeah, so that was, so that's what really led to um, trying to go down a new avenue, something else. I wonder, like, I'm still curious as to whether at some point I might um, want to go back and set something up of my own. Yeah, that's going to be my question. So you said uh, the next thing I do, I don't think I should be the entrepreneur, but is that? There might, it might be there at some point, yeah. but I think that I've sort of also come to a belief that... Um, there's only so much merit in lots of people setting up their own thing. And sometimes actually coalescing and coming together around something can have a bigger and greater effect. And um, a piece that I've missed out on in life to date, I think the largest organization I've worked for was when I was teaching. And we had like a staff of, I don't know, 60. Um, so the companies I've been in or the organizations I've been in have all been really, really small. Yeah. And I really want to understand what is it to work in a bigger organization. And I also want to understand what it is to work in a business. So the young people that I've worked with historically, particularly in Spark and Metal, and some of whom it's sort of similarly in, in uh, the Goodall Foundation, but it's been a less direct relationship, have all been those who they're not the most marginalized. They're not the ones right at the fringes of society who will need support um, for probably a large tract of their life. Um, they are the ones who have got something, but there are just a couple of barriers, potentially social or cultural or economic, that are preventing them from getting to where they want to go. And I'm increasingly kind of of the view that actually charity is not best placed these days to support those young people. And that's where business should really be kicking in and doing more to find... Uh, thoughtful ways of diversifying their workforce and, mm. and getting more young people to go in down different routes and so for me I think that's the next step I don't know what might come after that but it's really thinking about what are the businesses that are disrupting the ways of um, how the world works like where's the ambition and the kind of bold ideas and stuff that I'm always drawn to that shiny squirrel board how can I go and join somebody else's uh, and use that to think about how can we make this something that works for the sorts of young people or the older versions of the young people that I've always been drawn to and want to work with. Yeah. Um, we've talked a couple of times, we've sort of stumbled across kids, right? Oh, yeah, and that all happened whilst oh, I yeah. was <laughs> pregnant or whatever. Um, so I want to just talk about that a bit more directly. So I feel like you have a very honest uh, approach to the kind of work-life balance side of things and being a parent alongside work and stuff like that. So maybe I'll just ask you a really open question about this and just say, what's your approach to parenting? Should we just sure. go as open as that and see what yeah. comes up? 
I um, like to refer to myself as a top and tail parent. So um, I love seeing my kids at the beginning of the day. <laughs> and I love seeing them at the end of the day. And I love not being with them in the middle. <laughs> Um, Which I think a lot of people would be scared to admit that, right? Maybe. Would feel like that's something to feel guilty about. Yeah, like, I was just... talking to a colleague the other day because um, my I'm totally the same, by the way. I, totally get it. <laughs> um, I think particularly for mothers, right? I think fathers are there somehow. It's like more socially acceptable to be able to say, you know, I'm like a, a proactive parent, but I have a full time like working mm. life that I'm committed to. And for women to say that, sometimes there's a little bit. It's a little bit harder. Um, And I think that being a mother is way harder than the job that I have. So if being a full-time mum, it's just just totally exhausting. And I don't have the patience um, for it. Um, And um, I like independent, capable uh, humans. And so I just don't want my kids to be too dependent on me, even when they're like not even Mm. three. so, uh, so yeah, no, I do have quite a pragmatic attitude around that. I don't want to have more than two kids because I think I really want to work full time. Um, I find a lot of um, joy and energy from the work that I do. And I think that's come from my, my parents both worked full time, but my mum was a, a writer, so she was able to do it from home. But I take a lot of energy and have a lot of like sense of self from the work that I do. Um, and so I don't want to not do that. And for me, I... I couldn't be the sort of parent that I'd want to be, even if, even a part time one, um, a kind of weekends and evenings one. Uh, if I if I have more than two kids, and I super admire people who do that, and all the all the variety of choices that are made around how to have and manage and look after um, kids and family and everything else, and it's not just kids, right? It's also the sandwich generation. So I've now got older parents, and one of them is very well. Um, so how do you have the balance between being able to be around to support them when I live quite far away, having time for the kids who are two very, very energetic and um, intensive boys. And there's, you know, there's like a husband who I occasionally have to like talk to, <laughs> uh, friends and various other things. And I, um, yeah, so I am really candid about it. And I have quite a lot of chats with women who are maybe about to have a baby and just say it's not the whole Disney. You don't ha- don't worry if you don't have the whole Disney thing. Like you can be a great mum without having to kind of helicopter around a playground um, for four hours every morning for you know five years. Um, and um, if I, I feel, and again, maybe I'm just saying that to make myself feel better. But if parents are happy, then kids are happy. Mm. Um, and uh, but it's just like feeling the balance. And week to week, that's really different. So the last couple of weeks I've really wanted to have as much time as possible with my kids I'm sure I'm going to be fed up with that and by the time the holidays come around I'm going to be really excited that I get less holiday time than my husband so that I have I have an excuse to come to work um yeah and I think that there's a style of parenting somebody saw how I was with my um elder son who's now seven so this was about two or three years ago and um I like I don't sit down and engage with my kids all that often like I let them just go and do their own thing um, and somebody saw me with him, like doing this, i.e., just like not giving him any attention. <laughs> and they were just like, "Have you heard of this '70s style of parenting called benign neglect?" <laughs> and I was like, "No, but this sounds great." And they were like, "Yeah, it was basically the philosophy was that it's a good thing for kids to be bored and to try and find their own mm. things to do because that's what will stimulate them and enable them to kind of." look after themselves as they go further down the line. And I was like, hook, line and sinker, I am in. Mm. That is my style. Um, I was having this conversation the other day about 
we've forgotten what it is to be bored and we've also forgotten what it is for kids to be bored mm-hmm. and actually you're right like a lot of the creativity and yeah and, I was uh, bored for so yeah. much of my life I was basically an only child my sister my half sister is like 16 years older than me my mum was working um and so like during the holidays like she would be like downstairs at her desk writing and I would have no I had no friends so I had like nothing to, I just had to entertain myself and I'm so grateful for it although mm. <laughs> Uh, maybe other people would then like knowing me then decide that they'd want to parent their children differently if this is the, this is the outcome <laughs> um, but yeah so I I really appreciate that now being able to like find ways of entertaining myself um, and I want that for my kids saying that I'm a little bit I lean a little bit too heavily on like screens for, for my kids mm. sometimes um, but yeah so I really so is that the bit that you feel guilty about yeah I think yeah. I overscreen them yeah. Um, actually, the older one could just like watch TV forever. The younger one is just not that interested and then go and entertain himself. So that's good. But yes, I think it is important. And like weekends are kind of sacrosanct and Sundays, like it's just family time. There's nothing else that happens within that. Um, so that's really, that's really, really important. And then the, the mornings, like before I go to work and when I come back are super precious. Um, and then everybody gets to do their own thing in the middle of the day. So the kids actually get entertained, either by school or by nursery or whatever. Um, and my husband and I get to, you know, go and do jobs that we are super lucky that we really, really love and engage us in positive ways rather than like stressful ways. Um, and the podcast is called Beyond Busy. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about your relationship with being busy because the other thing is, so you have... Uh, would you call it a camper van? Yes. Called the Robert Bed- Bedford? Yeah. Which is an old Bedford van. Yeah. Which you were saying to me the other week, oh, if you want to borrow the Robert Bedford, and I said to you, I don't, like, all I hear about it is that it breaks down a lot. And yeah. If you want to borrow it to drive five miles, yeah. ditch <laughs> and go there, then go and for then it. And then it breaks down. Yeah. Um, so you have that as a little sort of hobby thing. Which you... we haven't used for a long time. And when I tried to get it sold the other day, <laughs> they didn't offer me very much money. <laughs> Um, and you do running and you have yeah. your house on Airbnb and yes. you do lots of other stuff. Yes. So is that, do you feel like that is an intentional thing? Do you look at those things as being, they're all necessary evils or do you feel like you are in some ways addicted to adding more busyness onto your day and onto your life? Totally. I'm totally addicted <laughs> to adding more business. I don't think I've unclenched for like 11 years. Um, I am. That's definitely the title of the podcast. I haven't unclenched. I haven't unclenched. There we go. Great. Hashtag not unclenched. Uh, or just clenched. Um, so I think that I am definitely, uh, I really like having lots of stuff to do. And I've read the various articles where they say it's so annoying when people like talk about how busy they are and they just sound like, you know, like urbane pricks. Uh, and I'm one of those people and I judge myself for it and I like constantly continue to do it I just um I really like the more I have to do the more I get done I feel kind of inspired and motivated the running thing is just like a legitimate excuse to leave the house on the weekend um uh, as well as like obviously there are various health benefits to it too um we should just add that you just ran a hill marathon I just ran my first ever marathon and I was like the asthmatic kid who at school like cross-country running was like my nemesis and I would just want to like cry and die um so that says how much even on weekends um I want to leave the house and be alone I really love being alone or by myself quite a lot um and uh 
So yeah, I really like having lots to do, but I really like being having control over my time doing it. So if somebody else is telling me what to do when, then that doesn't work very well. But if I can fill my own time full to the brim and then more more so, then then I then I'm like as happy as can be. What happens when you you fill it, but then you feel under? Do you feel under pressure by that? Do you ever feel like you have too much on and you're exhausted and occasionally? How, how so how and how do you do that? How do you switch off and? That's a very good question. We um, just installed a bath in our bathroom upstairs. And actually, I know it's really bad for water. But man, honestly, like the simple thing of just having a bath is like my relaxation point where I nearly, I'm not happy. So it's really simple things like that um, through to like mindless TV shows. I mean, really kind of boring stuff. I don't read as much as I, I might imagine that I would read. I don't really do that very much. Um, so uh, I d- how do I really switch off? No, I'm not. V- I'm not very switched off at the moment. There's a lot going. 